Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Roots and Ruminants, and uh, this one's coming to you from Kansas City. We're at the National Sea Trade Association meeting down here in Kansas City, and so uh, we're sitting down with Jared and Stephen uh, from New Zealand. So uh, we've only had a handful of international guests. I think maybe you're the third. So it's a pleasure to get you on. So you won the award for traveling the farthest for the podcast, for sure. <laughs> yes, it's a long way from New Zealand to Kansas City. Right. Yes, that's, that's true. That is true. So Stephen, uh, we've had just a tremendous amount of, uh, of success with the products that have came out of your breeding program. Yep. And we've used a lot of the brassicas in your grazing system. So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first and then the company you work for and, and how we've had a had a connection? Yeah, certainly, Justin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to be talking to your listeners. Um, we've had a relationship with uh, Melbourne via our distributor here in the U.S. called um, Ioken. Ioken distribute the brand of seeds um, under PGG Seeds brand. And a bit of history is that Pineville Guinness, PGG, and Wrightson's were two separate companies. They merged about 15 years ago, or maybe a little bit longer. And uh, Ioka were distributed for the PGG Seeds channel, so we just continued that relationship with them. Um, and um, they continue to sell our products under Brassica. Uh, Winfred's one of the products that we license in and sell via them. Uh, and uh, some green globe turnips and various mm. things like that. So that's the distribution model we have, and that's how the products get through to you guys. Sure. Um, my role is to manage the international sales for our proprietary seeds, so those seeds that we own, and the brassicas are a really big part of it. And Ioka through to Melbourne are um, the really important customers of ours. So yeah. it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. I got to be honest, you know, 12 years ago, I remember picking up the pamphlet of PGG. And looking at all these fat little white-faced sheep grazing fields of turnips, I was like, whoa, what is this? This is pretty cool. You know, and then trying to figure out, okay, how do we put some of these brassicas into these grazing systems in the United States? Yeah. Knowing that our farmland isn't being used for grazing sheep at all, but there was starting to be this cover crop movement, double cropping systems in after grain harvests, yeah. and we started to find a bit of a home for them. Yeah, well, and that's the beauty about the brassicas, because the brassicas are quite versatile plants. And you've got brasses, brass, brassicas that can be used for winter forage, or fall forage, or summer forage. And um, they can be grazed by uh, sheep, cattle, and, um, and deer. Yeah. Um, so they've got a lot of versatility, and there's a lot of different brassicas for different uses. So, yeah, we've got a really wide portfolio and can offer a lot of stuff. So what was the original brassica? Was it mustard? That started with, or what was like you know, when it branched out? Did we know which of the brassicas, even the native ones, which were you know the earliest? Yeah, or... brassicas have been used for hundreds of years, yeah. and I guess it depends a wee bit on where the which origin you look at. Okay, but mustard is one that's been around for for a long time. Yeah. There's um, rutabaga or Swedes as we call it. They've been around for a long time. 
um, there's turnips and there's a, there's a range of things, but yeah. possibly right back in the origins it could well be mustards. Okay. Um, our plant breeders would know that history, but um, <laughs> I don't know that <laughs> so much. Yeah, it's curious. So it's anything in that you know cabbage mustard type family, right? It's all that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely, but there's a really interesting difference because oh. there's brassicas for vegetable or oil yeah. seed production as well. So two yeah. different uses there: vegetable seed, oil seed, and then there's forage brassicas. And it's a really important question or a really important thing to try and distinguish between, in particular, here in the US, there's a lot of stuff that gets classified as a brassica or a forage, but it may actually be a oil seed rate or, sure. or a radish that's suitable for oil seed production and not forage production. And that's a really, really important thing to make the distinction of. We're breeders of the forage plants, um, so all of our PGG seed stuff that's available through Newborn <coughs> is strictly forage. Plants. Mm -hmm. It's not the, the stuff that runs off to seed in 90 days and squeeze the seed to get the oil out or anything like that, like like some of the stuff that is available. So the typical brassicas are uh, deep taproot type, you know, plants. Correct. Um, lots of leafy forage in the forage side of it, right? So lots of like green leafy material. Yep. Highly digestible. Yes. And also extremely cold tolerant. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are some that um, some radishes and some turnips that don't have cold tolerance, mm. but within those species there are also um, some that do have really good cold tolerance. And then the forage rapes, they have really good cold tolerance. Kales are very winter hardy and have good uh, forage tolerance, uh, cold tolerance, I should say. And swedes are also very, very winter hardy. So so there's a there is some segregation within the species, and then there are true species that are that are winter cold tolerant. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of times you have a, a very mixed multi-species pepper crop mix. As the temperatures get colder this time of year, right, in the northern plains, things start dying off one at a time, right? Yeah. First your sorghums, your millets, the ones that are really sensitive, you know, get 32 degrees and they start to, boom, go brown. And then you're usually left with the time of the year where there's a, there's some clumps of brassicas, right, that are still grass green out there yeah. while everything else is dying yeah. down. Yeah, and typically that would be winter hardy turnips, and your um, forage rapes that have got winter hardiness as well, probably. Um, maybe some kale, I'm not sure we can use that, but those are the things that you would pinpoint and say, yep, those are the winter hardy ones, yeah. And you find that there are, within turnips, there are definitely summer types which the bulbs don't have the keeping ability, they turn to mush as those temperatures drop and you start to get frost, and the leaves burn and frost off, but so there is within turnips uh, a summer time and a winter time, so it's really important to know which one you're getting. Or which one match up for the for these purpose? Do you do much at all on um, doing different uh, different brassicas or different grazing mixes that contain brassicas for different species of livestock? Uh, certainly, you're doing some sheep grazing mixes, but what about dairy or yeah. battening out yearling steers or anything like that? Yeah, there is some um, some varieties or again species that suit different classes of livestock better. Um, and what and it also comes down to, and this is a really important point for us, is when you need the forage, and that comes down to the farm system a little bit, or the climatic um, conditions, regional adaptation, things like that. So, for instance, we use summer turnips on dairy farms in New Zealand to maintain milk production through the summer months when the grass is not growing. So we've got a feed deficit in the summer because because the lower rainfall, the higher temperatures, the ryegrass starts to slow sure. down on its growth. So our farmers would plant turnips, yep. uh, the yep. summer turnip, and that's really quick growing. And in 90 days, they'll be growing a crop that might have 
10 or 12 tonnes of dry matter on it, and they were allocating a certain amount, a third of the, of the cow's diet a day um, to the animal, and they'll be strip grazing it and, and consuming that for the summer. And then in the winter, those same cows might be on a diet of kale and swedes, or um, kale and swedes, and maybe a little bit of ryegrass, or, or hay, or silage, those sorts of things. So we have different crops for different um, regions and also different farm systems at different times of year. Yeah. Yeah. Are you getting the Swedes much? Have you done much of Swedes, Justin? We haven't done yeah. much of Swedes. Yeah. The, the thing with Swedes is they're a really long-term crop. They're okay. on the ground for probably around about nine months, ten months. They've got really high yield potential, incredibly high forage quality because the bulb's massive and it has really good sugars and energy content. Um, but they're a little bit prone to to heat in the summer and they don't yield quite so well if it's a spot dry summer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they probably haven't been used as widely as things like green globe turnips, for instance, which you can plant later and still get a similar result out of. So so it sort of comes down a wee bit to the climatic conditions and the time you've got to, to grow that, that yeah. product. So in New Zealand or Missouri or, you know, southern Missouri, we have this prolonged cool season, which doesn't really fully off Frost kill, right? You might need them to 20 degrees, 21 degrees, but don't have a good kill yeah. frost. Yeah. It works really well because they have that long time frame. Yeah. Whereas in our shorter 60, 90, 120 days, yeah. you know, starting in August, we wouldn't quite see the full potential out of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. You wouldn't see the full potential. And um, so we in the North Island of New Zealand wouldn't use Swedes because the summer's too hot and they okay. tend to wilt a wee bit and not get the yield out of it. Reduces the yield potential. But you go to Southland, and it's a bit like you're describing what Missouri. Mm -hmm. Cold through the winter months, a lot of rain through the summer months for us in Southland, and a really long growing season. We can get massive yields of swings down there. So, okay. so potential is much higher. So again, we look at the regional adaption, the farm system, all of those things when selecting which grass to use. Sure. You mentioned ryegrass yep. quite a few times, and it's something that we probably don't fully utilize to its fullest. Right? Like we'll use it kind of as a nurse crop, uh, in perennial pasture mixes, knowing that it's only going to survive a couple of years, or we'll use Italian ryegrass for a one-year annual crop, but yeah. we don't use a lot of other perennial ryegrasses in these grazing systems especially. But why Why would somebody mix it with brassicas in, in those scenarios? Yeah, well, typically we probably wouldn't use it mixed with it, but we would have a paddock alongside. Okay. And the reason we do that is um, because you can't feed 100% of the cow's diet or the sheep's diet on brassicas. So you've got to have something else to give them the fibre and to give them an alternative you know, energy right. source, yeah. etc. So you're limited by, we always say, you're limited by the percentage of the diet that you can feed the animal. So they've got to get something from somewhere else. So for um, our brassicas, we might be giving a third of the animal's diet a day um, on brassicas. Well, that means that 70% effectively is coming from ryegrass or or hay or silage as well. And so we complement them, we don't use them together. Ryegrass for us is a really easy plant to grow. Um, pruning ryegrass is really easy to establish. Uh, it's got good high productivity where you've got good summer rainfall or, or mild summer conditions. And it's a really forgiving plant undergrazing. So it regrows really quickly. So for us, it works. Um, Challenge for some of your regions would be the winter tolerance of the ryegrasses. And not all the grasses are, are um, winter dormant and uh, or have that cold hardiness that you require. Sure. So that's potentially one of the reasons why, but there might be better suited species to, 
to your environment for that. But bright grass works for us. Okay. Yeah, because we're a small um, country surrounded by the sea, so very temperate climate. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of climate range from the top of the country to the bottom, but okay. typically it's very temperate, but not continental or, or you know, like you have with, with your um, plants. Right. How often would you refresh those ryegrass stands? You know, it's a perennial, but it does kind of come in a rotation, correct? Yeah, exactly. And we we say the ideal is every five years. Mm-hmm. And so we suggest to farmers that they should have a 20% rotation. Mm-hmm. So then they're on a five-year cycle. And brassicas are a really good fit to be in yeah. that rotation um, because it allows you to break up the soil, get rid of any of those old grass weeds, all of those sorts of things, and get the fertility level right before you go back to the new um, grass. But typically what happens is probably most farmers are on something more like a 15 10 to a 15% rotation. So they're probably working on eight to 10 years in reality. Okay. Um, but five years, what you tend to find is that the productivity of those ryegrasses is starting to slow down a wee bit and just go off the peak, um, mostly because of aggression of weeds and things like that. So you know, five years would be ideal, but seven to eight years is probably what reality is. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking uh, at New Zealand at a really high level, and the United States at a really high level. What are some of the things that you think each country is doing better or worse than the other? Or is, do you think that New Zealand is way further ahead than the United States at this in agriculture or behind? Or do you, yeah. Compare and contrast, I guess, globally for the two countries. Yeah, yeah. look, I, I think um, it's really hard to say that we're better in this area and we're better in that because the climates are really sure. Yeah, yeah. And what I find is when I come to the US, I find farmers that are doing a fantastic job in their climatic zone. Okay. And, yeah. and New Zealand farmers do a fantastic job in their climatic zone. You brought a New Zealand farmer and his system to um, the Midwest, it probably would fail because we we have all of our animals outdoors we're grazing grass all winter long and things like that and it may not necessarily work in an environment where you've got a lot of winter cold conditions and so it's it's a wee bit hard to say we do something better in this area you know but i think if oregon's a really interesting example because it's probably the closest thing there is to new zealand um, pacific northwest Mm -hmm. and i've seen some really really good pasture management in oregon on pretty wide grass systems like we have at home and so the contrast between the two systems is actually pretty minimal they're very very similar Um, it's still employing the same grazing rotations using the same species pretty wide grass white all those sorts of things um in that region and i think farmers are both you know really well adapted getting the best out of the pastures. Yeah. And then you come across here, and it's very, very different. And, you know, as I say, it's, it's probably not a fair comparison with New Zealand, but, you know, the guys here really know how to manage the pastures too. Sure. And I think probably the one thing, though, is the rate of pasture in mill, and that's something that could perhaps be improved on, yeah, but, um, you know, in certain systems. Yeah. 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 yeah, I would say Northern Plains Midwest, um, if we're planting uh, grass for pasture, for grazing, it's it's hardly ever thought of as a a short or moderate term. You know yeah. what I mean? Commitment. We, right. we don't really. And, and so a couple of things is one is we usually plan for species that have more longevity, but it also I think puts us out of this opportunity to have these refreshing stands of cropland that goes into perennials for a period of time to help regenerate the soil, help you know do all the positive things that perennials can do, but then come back into cropland. You know we have a very a very strict dichotomy of this is grasslands, 
right? And this is croplands, right? And we don't mix the two enough to the degree. I don't not saying we should go, you know, tilt a bunch of native sod to create more cropland, but we don't usually think of using perennial systems in our cropland rotation. So, yes. But there's a lot of places that do, right? Yeah. So certainly the South, there's places in the U.S. to do that. And then globally, that's, it's, you know, even Europe as well, like far more common to have these pasture systems refreshed yes. yeah. on a continual basis. Yeah, and I think you've got to look at, if you are going into that system to renew pastures, you've got to look at the risks and you've got to say, well, is this a soil that's prone to erosion? Or is this an area where we're going to get a lot of wind damage at that seedling stage and those sorts of things? So you've got to weigh up that risk. And, and you know, the locals know that system yeah. best and they know, and there'll be reasons for why they do and why they don't. But I think it all comes down to the risk and reward, really, when we start to enter into those, those programs of pasture renewal. Choose, and usually there's something wrong with it, right? Yep. So, and you have to choose, am I going to graze that field? Am I just going to harvest it? For cash value, sell the green, whatever, or am I going to rent it out? Right. Sell the silage, yeah, we can be storage yeah. or grain. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. Okay, but I think we can do this with just brassica scenarios. Okay. Brassica only. Brassica only yep. scenario. Okay. Yep. Okay. And uh, so here's what I have in mind. Okay, so we got a, a field of Winfred brassica. Yes. Okay. We've got a field of dwarf Essex rapeseed. Cool. Yeah. And we have a field of sterile mustard. Oh, okay. Okay. And you have to choose to graze one, harvest it for feed, or just rent it out because you don't want to deal with it. Well, that's easy. <laughs> okay. That's easy for me. So. Okay. Well, you get to go first. <laughs> I'd graze the Winfrey. Okay. And the reason why I'd graze the Winfrey is when you look at it, and um, you know, I've seen photos today of these crops that are a meter high, beautiful big leaf area, and really healthy. And you know, you just know. That the animals are going to do well. Yeah. The quality is there, and you just know that the animals are going to get in there and with the right management, you'll get very good animal performance, be it weight gain or be it so, um, your body condition improvements, yeah. all those oh, things. Yeah. So, so I'd always graze the windfruit. And the other thing is the windfruit's regrazable, so it will grow that. Sure. And so multiple grazes. Multiple grazes. So for me, it's a no brainer. The windfruit's the grazing one. Okay. Okay. Um, the, what, what, Purple what, top what, turnips. Yeah, well, purple top turnips is a good single graze option. Okay. Um, not the regrowth, but yeah. So I guess I've got a choice of either renting it or Harvest, yeah. harvesting it. Yeah. Sterile mustard. I don't know much about the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I'd harvest it with yeah. uh, a bunch of bees and honey out of it. That's about the only way. Uh, it's the best way to do a, a single stand of that, right? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. all you yeah. have yeah. is the flowering. There's not that. a lot of greens value for the mustard. No, it's a straight species. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah. a corporation of candy, but it's straight species, I'm assuming. But it's a great pollen. Yeah. Yeah. Great pollen. That's a great Early flower. Yeah. 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 So we need to harvest that. How are you going to harvest the turnips, though? Or, sorry, no, then you just have to rent out the turnips. Yeah, it's fine. But in terms of, they're, they're more common, right? People understand ah, it. Yeah, yeah. I always look at the rented scenario as, as like my cash opportunity, yeah. right? So I always like trying to use the obscure things yep. and then rent out the thing that, you know, would have the most value to the most neighbors, something that they're most familiar with. Yep. That's how I usually approach yeah. this. Yeah. It's, yeah, if you said, hey, I got a quarter of turnips or I got a quarter of Winfred, right. you want to graze one? They're probably yeah. like, yeah, I'll graze the turnips. Right. They know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then if you like at the bee thing, you could sell honey mustard. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> honey, like actual honey mustard. That's where honey mustard comes. And be like all other honey mustard is imitation. This is an actual honey mustard. <laughs> Have you had the honey mustard dots? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're really good. Anybody that sells dots at a gas station or store, I, I hardly ever buy the pretzel form because I'll buy two bags of the cheese oh, yeah. before I'll buy the pretzels. This is a local delicacy food around there. Yeah, it's a, a gal in North Dakota started these dot pretzels. Yep. She sold them for $2 billion. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but they're pretzel. a very uniquely flavored pretzel. Right. And yeah. now there's yeah, the honey mustard. There's like a fiesta. Yeah, like a one or something. So. There's a there's a cinnamon sugar one. I like those. Yeah. Those yeah. are good. It's a nice treat for breakfast with yeah. coffee. Yeah. And you just get a few, not a full donut or anything. Honey um, mustard. Honey mustard honey. That's right. I like it. The uh, I mean, because I don't like mustard that much. I think I can't be the only family that like buys a new. Think of mustard every two years and then waits for it to expire while it's still two thirds full, throws it out, and then has to get a new thing of mustard. Because you're like, you have to have mustard, right? Because it's such a basic condiment. But it just does not get used in our household. Exactly the same. Like, yeah, we'll take 30, 37 bottles of ketchup for every one little thing of mustard. Smart marketing. Minimum size, 12 ounces. You gotta have honey and is mustard. Like, mustard is totally, totally cheating off of the ketchup marketing oh, yeah. candidates. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just coming along for the ride. They probably provide the yellow bottles next to the red bottles that you buy as a picnic set. They probably do that for free, like <laughs> yeah. paying to get the yellow bottles just to get people to incorporate buying honey or mustard and ketchup together. Yeah. <laughs> but the ketchup and mustard volume has got to be like 30 to 1. Yeah. 20 to 1. Yes. Yeah. There's not a lot of people dipping French fries in mustard. No, I hope so. Wouldn't be done so much. <laughs> That's how I'd probably square out that. Uh, that scenario. Yeah. Well, the pepper, 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 I like pepper, it. So. Yeah. Works. Well, it's a good ending to the yeah. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Talk about the condiments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, a, to a successful podcast on brassicas, we end with that. Brassicas are a great condiment to any cover crop mix. Any multi-species that, green cover there crop There we mix, go. They're a great That's addition. you got to sprinkle a few in. That small seed stuff does not take too many pounds no. of brassicas to really well, spice up the thing. You're getting a lot of value for money. Yeah, sure. Right. In the bag of brassica. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of energy in that bag. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. When you analyze it on how far it goes and how much it will produce, there's a lot of energy. In well, the biblical yeah. example of faith is the mustard seed, right? Yep. From a small mustard seed, so much will grow. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you very much. That was awesome to see you. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Nice to meet you. All right. Tune in uh, next time for another episode of Roots and Rumors. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.